Welcome to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio, sponsored by EarthX, the world's largest environmental experience, and also sponsored by Natural Awakenings Magazine. Live your healthiest life on a healthier planet. Now, here's your host, Bernice Butler. Welcome to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio today. We're now in our second season, and we're more excited than ever to continue to help you explore and understand the unbreakable relationship between your health and the health of the planet. We look at the hottest topics related to our environment and its sustainability and how they affect your health and wellness. Here are issues like climate change, plastic pollution, extreme weather events, and others will meet up with everyday impacts like allergies and asthma, digestive issues and gut health, cancers, lung and heart issues, and more. So listen in today as we interview experts for today's show on the clean energy imperative. Where are we? How are we doing with this? And how is our health, wellness, and well-being affected? We hear the terms renewable energy, green energy, and clean energy. And with such an increased and necessary focus on climate change, sustainability, and saving our planet, it can be quite confusing sometimes to keep up to date with the terminology or even to know if you're using or thinking about the correct term. With this in mind, and before we get into the meat and potatoes of today's show, I want to try to simplify this and to define and tell about the many similarities and the few differences between these three terms that we hear thrown around a lot, but which at the same time really are the pillars of ensuring a safer, healthier, and more sustainable future for all of us. Renewable energy is essentially a power that's generated from a source that is constantly being replenished. In theory, this type of energy should never run out making it a much more efficient option than non-renewable sources such as fossil fuels and gas, which of course are damaging to the atmosphere. Renewable energy sources are natural and they include the likes of wind power and solar panels. Green energy is defined as power generated from natural sources such as wind, water, and sunlight. And this is where some confusion may occur because most green energy sources are also renewable, but Not all renewable energy sources are wholly green, and that's because they're not all generated from natural sources. An example of this is hydropower, which while it is renewable, the process of generating these vast amounts of, if not in fact green, because of the industrialization and the deforestation involved in the processes of building these huge hydro dam projects that dot around the world. The most renewable and the most green power source, of course, is our planet. And then clean energy is defined by dictionary.com as energy, as electricity, or nuclear power. And that does not pollute the atmosphere when used, as opposed to coal and oil that do. Again, there are some obvious crossover between clean energy, green energy, and renewable energy. Clean and green energy are pretty much direct synonyms, but if you need help remembering, let me briefly summarize. Clean energy, think of clean air. Green energy equal natural sources, and renewable energy is energy that is from a regenerative or a source that can be reproduced. 
Although this sounds or seems like a lot, we have some really cool guests today who are experts at all of these subjects, and I think they are experts at simplifying it for us. And here today to start us off is Julie McNamara. Julie is with the Union of Concerned Scientists. Julie McNamara is an energy analyst with the Climate and Energy Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists. And in her role, Julie analyzes state, regional, and national policies relating to clean energy development and deployment. Before joining the Union of Concerned Scientists, Julie worked as a graduate research assistant for MIT's program on emerging technologies. And she previously spent several years as an environmental scientist at Eastern Research Group, which is an environmental and public policy consulting firm. Now, while she was there, Julie worked on and analyzed and communicated data on environmental indicators, community health exposures, and occupational health and safety hazards for federal and state agencies and their stakeholders. Welcome, Julie. We are so glad that you could join us today. Thank you for having me. Julie, if you can start us off, you are really a policy expert there at the, I'm going to call it the UCS, where you all use very rigorous independent science to solve our planet's most pressing problems, and you work in the policy area of UCS. So will you tell our listeners how and why policy and policy matters as it relates to first how they are affected, our listeners, how they are affected by energy production and their own energy use, and then how policy matters in getting us away from fossil fuels and ensuring that the clean energy transition actually occurs. Sure. So most of us don't have direct control over the electricity that comes through the wires or the fuels that come through the pipelines. We plug in our electronics at the end of the day, right? And we receive what's coming down the line. But the fact is what resources generate that electricity have an impact on all of us. Um, that comes with costs, that comes with public health implications. So these are things that very much affect us, but we can't uh, directly control on the day-to-day. Policy helps us align our values and our interests um, with, with the resources we have on hand. And that's especially important when it comes to, uh, you know, as we think about transitioning away from fossil fuels, Um, because one of the most challenging aspects of the energy transition is simply inertia. Um, I don't mean uh, power plant inertia, which is an engineering concept for another day, but I mean uh, the challenges with changing how we've long done things for decades and decades. Um, It's what we know, and it takes change um, to transition to clean energy because things will operate differently. Um, Policy helps ensure that process progresses. It's also the case that fossil fuel interests, there are significant vested interests in the policy as it exists today. And there are reasons for profit um, that, that inhibit the transition to clean energy, even if it's in the best interest of the broader public. So again, policy can help overcome these challenges. Policies can also take the form of fees where we uh, put a penalty on things we don't want. So 
we can, this is where conversations around, say, carbon taxes come in. If we don't want something and we bring in the cost of that thing, we don't want that pollution, um, then it's a disincentive to, to produce it. Um, and it looks that it makes the things we do want look better by comparison. And finally, we can set standards. And that's where we say, we set a target and we say, we want you to meet this. And, and we think about the uh, energy space. One common standard is uh, renewable portfolio programs where states in particular have targets set out each year um, for the share of their electricity mix that will be met by renewables. This was a, a policy designed actually several decades ago that's really now taken off. Um, first, as a way to, uh, to pull new technologies online to create space um, to just help get a little bit, we're talking less than 5% of the generation mix. Um, nowadays, we have many states committing to 100% renewable energy in the decades ahead through policies like renewable portfolio standards. So every year, a little bit more renewable energy required. Indeed, and we're going to talk about that a lot more in the second half of our show, but let me get this correct. Are you saying that all states are required to have a renewables portfolio and, and annually state their goals for renewable usage, or are they just maybe doing it, or is it a requirement? Unfortunately, not all states have these policies. A number do, uh, more than half, but... That also means that there are a number of states that don't have these policies. And the consequences of that are lagging clean energy progress, which affects people on the ground, right? That means you have coal plants that stay around longer, um, and that means uh, more pollution. Indeed. At our last show last week, we talked a lot about how expensive coal is and how cheap everything else is getting. But I did want people to understand and know about policy, it is not a requirement, which is probably why all states are not doing it. I'm sure we have a lot of advocacy groups out there, I hope, who are trying to push for that to become policy, that all states must do that annually. And maybe that's something this new administration will do. We are going to go to break right now. And after the break, we will return because we have a lot more good information to get from Julie McNamara with the Union of Concerned Scientists. Thank you, Julie. We'll be right back on the other side. We want to give a shout out now to our sponsors. That is EarthX, the world's largest environmental experience, promoting environmental awareness through expo, conferences, film festival, interactive experiences, and now EarthX streaming TV. Our other sponsor is Natural Awakenings, Dallas-Fort Worth Magazine, the Green, Healthy, and Sustainable Living Authority for the DFW Metroplex and North Texas communities. Print issues of Natural Awakenings can be found in all Whole Foods markets, natural grocers, central markets, sunflower shops, and many, many other locations, as well as available online free for download at nadallas.com. Check them out. Our other sponsor is North Haven Gardens, serving the Metroplex since 1951, the most respected horticultural establishment in North Texas, offering gardening and plant education, concierge services, DIY classes, gifts, and more. Check them out at NHG.com. And Lynn Dental Care, 
practicing dentistry for over 38 years with a holistic approach and no mercury. Looking at the whole body, specializing in periodontics, Dr. Lynn is board certified by the International Academy of Oral Medicine and Toxicology. Check them out at lindentalcare.com. Thank you, sponsors. Welcome back to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio today to our show on the clean energy imperative. And we are back with Julie McNamara with the Union of Concerned Scientists. Welcome back, Julie, and thank you again so much for being with us. Thank you. Before we left, you were explaining in layman's language and really making us all much smarter about policy and how it affects our daily lives. And I think you really did a good job of getting over the point that policy is not something far, far away. It determines how we live, eat, and breathe every day. But keeping on that line, I want to ask you now, what are some of the important policies at the federal, state, and local levels that perhaps you all at UCS have been instrumental in implementing? That's number two. But number one really is what are some of the biggest or most important policies at all those levels that we, as ordinary people, are living with, good, bad, or ugly? (laughs) Sure. So that's a great question because, in fact, policy does happen at every level, and it affects us at every level. Um, But we're not always aware of the ones. uh, Sometimes it's local or state um, and how they can get in the way or they can help advance change. So at the federal level, That's where a lot of policy discussion often focuses um, when we talk about big national policy. And that is the case. Uh, In many areas of the energy transition, federal policy is critically important. It sets those big picture targets to which all of us then point and try to to advance. Um, Right now, our federal government is without a carbon standard for power plants. That is an abdication of its responsibility, but there are processes in place right now for the Environmental Protection Agency to set those standards. That will be very important as we look ahead to to fully addressing um, the climate impacts of our power sector. Could you just share how that affects them? The fact that we do not have a carbon standard, how does that affect ordinary people in their everyday lives. That's right. So, you know, as we talked about, some states have aggressive policies, these ambitious agendas that are driving forward progress, but not all do. And not only does that mean as a nation, we're not advancing as fast as we could. And every time we talk about how fast we're advancing, the flip side of that is the magnitude of the climate impacts we'll face down the road. Um, and that we face right now and deal with today. Um, so what makes federal policy so important is it sets that, uh, that baseline, that hurdle above which all states must, must meet, um, and it drives that progress across the country. That's beneficial for a lot of reasons. It means that there's no one place where polluters can concentrate and Um, be free from regulation. That's one of the most important jobs of our federal government on this front. Um, And it means that together we can be trying new approaches and 
demoing new policies and um, all working together to figure out how a clean energy transition really progresses. I think an increasing number of states have seen that this is not a question. It's not an option. It's only a matter of when. And I think not only that, they've seen real benefits from advancing clean energy. They've seen lower costs. They've seen cleaner air. They've had a healthier population. That's a benefit that we should all celebrate. Let me ask you this, though, too, Julie. Now, we have been and we are seeing technology solve many of our world's problems and our life's issues daily. And many of us think, debatably so, that technology can enable us to have a better quality of life. So will you talk to us a little bit, Julie, about how technology has moved us ahead or not in terms of getting us away from fossil fuels and moving towards that dream of clean energy world? Sure. So, you know, as recently as 2006, coal represented more than half of our nation's electricity generation. Last year, it was at 20%. At the same time, in 2006, wind was barely registered. Solar was not even visible uh, in the numbers. You had to be looking in the fine print. Now, renewables make up uh, again. They've surpassed coal this year. They've just surpassed and are tied approximately with nuclear, which means they're They have rocketed up the generation mix. We're going in the right direction, but we're not going there fast enough. What the last decade has shown is how much we can do and how much we have to do. Previously, debates focused on if we have 5%, 10% of renewables like wind or solar on the grid, the system will simply break. We've long since surpassed that. But every time we're inching up the needle, right, we're moving the stakes just a little bit further. Um, That is in part due to technology. That is in part due to understanding how to better integrate these variable resources, which we want to use as much as we can whenever we can because they're clean and they're cheap. But we have to figure out how to make the whole grid hang together. And that's where we've seen actually big advances simply from better weather forecasting, understanding exactly how the wind will operate or how the sun will be present or not. Um, That makes a huge difference. Uh, Having a smarter distribution system. So we think of electricity just coming from the plant to the home along the wires. But in fact, there's a lot you can do to help optimize flows so we can take, again, better advantage of these resources when they're available. And then there's how do you fill in the gaps? For a long time, uh, researchers have talked about the need for fossil fuels to fully back up the system. It's important to understand what do we do if the wind's not blowing, the sun's not shining, but we're increasingly finding clean energy alternatives to fill that role. And that's really where so much of the research that's coming down the road is is dedicated and where there's so much potential to gain. Indeed. We only have a couple of minutes left, so I've got some rapid-fire things. What would you say has perhaps been the most important technological advance as it relates to 
clean energy in maybe the last five years? And what would you say is the biggest limitation as it relates to us moving the ball further in relationship to clean energy? I'd say the biggest change is belief that we can do it and commitment to that change. So that's not so much a technology as it is political will. And this is a long debate in the energy world. Do we have the technologies we, can, we need to be able to make this? Well, this, the truth is right now we have the technologies we need for the next number of years. It's as clear as can be, we need to deploy as much renewables as we can, as fast as we can. And while we're doing that, we're working on figuring out all the additional uh, technologies that will be needed to have a 100% clean energy power system. I'm wondering if there are any stats on what the benefits are so far, because I think stats can go a long, long way in encouraging all sectors, as well as ordinary people, to hunker down and do the work that needs to be done for us to move. So what would you say are the most important stats that encourage or support or that make people say, oh, yeah, this is good. Let's move forward quickly. It's always important to remember why we're doing this. And the benefits are clean air and climate progress. And there's also a lot else that's baked in there. So the fossil fuels used in the energy system have been responsible for premature deaths of tens of thousands of people every year. Uh, that number is dropping the faster we transition to clean energy. But we also get local wealth building and investment opportunities from developing resources at the local level. That means we can move to a more equitable and broadly accessible energy system. That decentralized shift away from central power to decentralized power can have a huge benefit to local communities. I think I've read recently, too, that uh, the jobs generated by clean and renewable energy has now maybe exceeded, if not certainly approached, that of fossil fuels. Last thing, Julie, what can the government do to best, at this point, what can the government do to best help us transition, and what can ordinary people do? For the government, it's to set targets of where we need to go on the climate and, trans and translate that into energy system targets, and then unleash progress. That's critically important. Um, at the local level, for individuals, it's agitating for change. It's making clear the values and the reasons for this progress, why it's not an option. As we look to invest in our energy system, it's a, it's a simultaneous opportunity to boost climate resilience to invest in infrastructure that needs it. Make it a win-win-win. Thank you. And I'll say this last thing for you. For ordinary people, it's to talk about it. Talk about the need for it. And as we talk about it, just like we talk about the weather in the grocery store, then it moves on up. Thank you so much. We've been with Julie McNamara with the Union of Concerned Scientists, and she has really helped us understand the imperative for clean energy a lot more. Thank you so much for being with us, Julie. We are very blessed to, from time to time, be able to have guests from the UCS, and they're always enlightening. We will now be back on the other side to continue this conversation with a roundtable discussion with some other experts as we talk about what some of the states are actually doing. Thank you so much. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio today. We are back for part two of our show on the clean energy imperative. Where are we? How are we doing? And how is our health and well-being being affected? And at this part of the show, I want to talk to our experts in light of some of the things that we've been seeing, discussing, and experiencing almost every day now. That is wildfires in California and Australia, the snowmageddon or the icemageddon, whatever you want to call it, here in Texas last week, and climate change, and whatever else these experts see is on the horizon as it relates to the clean energy imperative. And here today to help us unpack this, again, is a roundtable of experts. First, we have Professor Jeffrey Logan with the National Renewable Energy Lab and the University of Colorado at Boulder. Professor Logan is the chief analyst in the Strategic Energy Analysis Center at the National Renewable Energy Lab. And for more than three decades, he has researched and communicated on clean energy policy options. Jeff has led innovative work on international power sector transformation, beneficial electrification, natural gas and renewable energy synergies, renewable energy policy design, and collaboration with key developing countries. He leads the policy and analysis group at the Renewable and Sustainable Energy Institute at the University of Colorado in Boulder. Previously, Jeff has had positions at the U.S. Congressional Research Service, the World Resources Institute, the International Energy Agency, and Pacific Northwest National Lab. He's also served as an advisor to the World Bank, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, and an assortment of utilities and policymakers around the world. Our other roundtable expert is Professor Joshua Rhodes at the University of Texas in Austin, which is my alma mater also. (laughs) Josh Rhodes is a research associate at the University of Texas at Austin and a founding partner of Ideasmith LLC. His current work is in the area of smart grid and the bulk electricity system, including impacts of energy efficiency, resource planning, distributed generation, and storage. Josh is a regular contributor to Forbes, and he is an Axios expert voice. Josh sits on the boards of the Texas Solar Energy Society and Pecan Street International. Welcome, Jeff and Joshua. We are so glad you guys could make time to join us today. Thanks for having us. I want to start out with you all by talking about the fact that a number of cities around the country have converted to 100% clean or renewable energy. And we want to look at this a little bit more as more and more cities plant this flag in the ground by establishing either the fact that they have or they've gone to 100% renewable energy or they establish a date in the future when they're going to. And so I'd like to talk about this a lot more so that our listeners know what's really going on, what it means to them, and what to expect. So now when converting from partial clean energy to 100% clean or green energy, what are some of the obstacles that each of you all see and what are some of the costs? And let's start with you, Jeff, and then we'll hear from Josh. Sure. Thanks, Bernice. It's a good question. And it really depends on what stage you're at in the having more and more clean energy on your system. I would say that to begin with, you know, you have to, some of the, um, the cultural changes that 
people who manage the electricity grid have to go through. They're used to having dispatchable coal and gas plants, for example, that they can call on. So in the very initial stages of a, of a city or a, a state um, adding more and more renewables to their system, they will face pushback from the very grid operators because they will have to do things differently than they have in the past. And then I guess as you get higher and higher up in levels of clean energy, you know, you have a variety of technical, political, and social challenges that you have to deal with. And, you know, some of the technical challenges are how do you integrate variable renewable energy into the grid at least cost so that it's reliable? And why this is an issue is because the electricity grid has to be kept in perfect balance at all times. The amount of electricity going in has to equal the amount going out. And if it doesn't, the whole grid can come down. And that's what happened last week in Texas or in parts of Texas. So there are a number of ways that you can make sure that the variable wind and solar that you're adding to the system um, is, is done so in a reliable way. And that will be there when everyone turns the switch on their wall. And some of the things that you can do, for example, are to use advanced forecasting techniques for wind and solar, as our previous um, guest mentioned. Or you can use shorter planning cycles in the dispatch of electricity. And then as you get more and more, you go further up the level of integration, you know, you can use electric storage, um, batteries, things like that, uh, or add more transmission lines. Um, so those are some of the technical things. And then politically and socially, um, you know, people have to be um, um, comfortable with the targets that, um, the, the government agencies are setting. Uh, when they hear the word 100% renewable energy, some people either get scared because they don't think it's possible or they, they think that it's gonna cost too much or that it's just impractical. I hear you saying maybe was there some truth to what our governor said last week when he said the reason we lost electricity was due to the wind turbines out west, the wind energy? Well, I think wind had a very minor role to play in, in the larger problems in Texas. I think the real problem was uh, lack of thinking about adaptation for climate change. And so far, people have only been talking about mitigation of climate change. They haven't been talking about the, the twin sister adaptation. And we have to really do a lot to rethink how we plan and operate all of our energy systems. Indeed, it is here. They're looking, what can we do to stop it? It's like, now it's no. What are you going to do now that's here to deal with it? Let me go to Josh right now real quick, too. What are some of the costs associated when we make that conversion to clean energy? And are these potential costs a real impediment for action? Talk to us about that. Yeah, so, um, you know, Clean energy, renewable energy, things like solar and wind have, you know, have come down significantly in costs since, you know, they were first, you know, deployed on the, um, in, um, in a, you know, in a, in small scales, you know, decades ago. In fact, you know, now we're seeing that solar and wind and typically depending on where you are in the country, because you know, the wind blows differently in some areas, the sun shines differently in some areas, but in general, they're some of the lowest cost resources that are, you know, can be deployed on the system. And we are seeing them deployed in, in a lot of different um, areas. And as, as Julie talked about, the share of renewable energy has gone um, up 
on the system. And in particularly in places like, um, you know, Texas, it doesn't have one of these uh, binding renewable portfolio standards that says, you know, you must install this much energy or you must install this much renewable energy. It's coming on our system because it's cheaper than other things. It's um, it's pretty easy to build a power plant in Texas. And if you look at the, the list of power plants that are trying to get on the system, it's just chock full of wind and solar projects because, you know, as developers are looking to, to, to build, that that is the cheapest thing um, out there. And so, I mean, I think particularly like we can get, you know, I've seen, you know, studies look at, we can get up, you know, we keep saving money and money and keep saving more money all the way up to 70, 80%, you know, renewables on the system. And then we need to, we might need to figure out some more of these like kind of firmer, like zero carbon uh, technologies um, that we were talking about in the previous segment to get us that hundred percent of the way there. But I think we're, we're going to see, we've seen a lot of cost declines um, for both the technologies and the consumer um, with deploying more renewables. And I think we're going to see that uh, for the, uh, in the, in the near future and into the mid future too. Josh, here in many parts of Texas, we have choice. And I know that I've seen a number of opportunities for people to use renewables for many years now with the choice system. And then I know also some of the big fossil kings, of course, are also offering this in their portfolio. Josh, do we have any statistics as to the use of various types of renewable energy here in Texas? And do we know if that's attributable to choice or what? Yeah. So, so last year, um, the for the total amount of electricity consumed in in most of Texas, you know, about 23% of energy came from wind, and about 2% came from solar. Um, and um, and that share has been growing, you know, for you know. 20 years uh, on on the grid, and and some of it is draw, driven by people's individual choices when they opt into to plans like that. Just like cities that opt to go 100% renewable, or individuals that opt to go into these 100% renewable energy plans, that sends a signal that that tells somebody or some company or some utility, hey, there's a demand for this product. Go out and build more of this product because that's what people are. That's what people are wanting. That's what businesses are wanting. I mean, we've seen businesses move to Texas because they're able to, you know meet some of their sustainability goals around, you know, clean energy and that kind of thing. So, I mean, I think it's, um, you know, that has been a big, a big driver in that everywhere from, you know, from corporations to cities, to individual choice to go after, to, to, to demand these technologies has driven their deployment pretty well. Okay. And we'll talk a little bit more about that when we come back. Uh, We'll be right back on the other side of the break with our expert panel, Professor Jeff Logan and Professor Josh Rhodes. We want to give a shout out now to our sponsors. That is EarthX, the world's largest environmental experience promoting environmental awareness through expo, conferences, film festival, interactive experiences, and now EarthX streaming TV. Our other sponsor is Natural Awakenings, Dallas-Fort Worth Magazine, the Green, Healthy, and Sustainable Living Authority for the DFW Metroplex and North Texas communities. Print issues of Natural Awakenings can be found in all Whole Foods, Markets, Natural Grocers, Central Market, Sunflower Shops, and many, many other locations, as well as available for download free online at nadallas.com. Our other sponsor is North Haven Gardens, serving the Metroplex since 1951, the most respected horticultural establishment in North Texas, offering gardening and plant education, concierge services, DIY classes, gifts, and more. Check them out at nhg.com. 
and Lynn Dental Care, practicing dentistry for over 38 years with a holistic approach, non-mercury, looking at the whole body. Specializing in periodontics, Dr. Lynn is board certified by the International Academy of Oral Medicine and Toxicology. Check them out at lindentalcare.com. Thank you, sponsors. Welcome back to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio. We're back with our segment on the clean energy imperative and our roundtable with Professor Jeffrey Logan with the University of Colorado at Boulder and Professor Joshua Rhodes with my alma mater, UT Austin. Again, thank you all so much for, for being with us today and helping us unpack this, this very important subject. Jeff, what are some of the common threads shared across the nation as we convert to cleaner energy? In other words, what are some of the effective models or other things that we see common to those cities that are going 100% and to those cities who have jumped out there and planted their flag that they are going to be 100% within the next few years or so? Good planning is the basis of any um, energy transition going forward. And often today, now, nowadays, we need a lot of data to do good planning. So using comp very complicated models and um, um, simulations of how the system's gonna grow over time is really important. And I just make one note that, um, at the National Renewable Energy Laboratory, um, we are doing a study for the city of Los Angeles right now on how they can decarbonize their grid by the year 2045. And it's enormously complicated especially because the city has environmental justice um, goals that it's trying to achieve. And they wanna make sure that all citizens are equally benefited by the, the transition to a clean grid. So I'll, I'll leave it there. I'm sure Josh can add a lot to what I've just said. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah. So, I mean, they're, the, the different models that have been used are as various as the models out there for the electricity system itself. And there, there are lots of different ways of structuring utilities and who owns power plants, who owns the wires, who do you write a bill, who do you pay your bill to um, at the end of the month? And, and there's, a, there's a million different ways. But I think one, one policy or one, one vehicle that I think has been extremely successful in the U.S. is something we call the power purchase agreement. And so what, what a power purchase agreement does is it, is it allows – before, as Julie was talking about, you know, we, we just – everybody from, you know, homeowners and, and, and like, industrial folks, you, you just plug into the grid and you get whatever is, you know, whatever is coming down that pike. And you don't, didn't really have any control. But the idea behind the power purchase agreement is it allows you to pay for a certain type of electricity, and it might not be that the exact electrons, like the exact electricity that comes through into your home or into your business is uh, renewable, but you guaranteed through a financial contract that that amount of energy was put onto the grid. And so it made the entire grid cleaner. Because with, with the grid, you've got a bunch of different types of energy coming in. You can think of it as like a bathtub with a whole bunch of different pipes putting water in. Some are renewable and some are not right now. And, but everyone's kind of getting the mix that comes out of it. But if you have more renewable pipes going in, you know, by these, by these contracts we call power purchase agreements, you know, that cleans up the entire mix for everyone. And at the end of the day, you know, for carbon emissions and for, for local air pollutants, like we're, we're trying to reduce those all around. And so, 
you know, I think that that financial instrument, which is, you know, is, is a, it's a financial instrument. It's kind of wonky to understand, but it essentially guarantees, you know, individuals can guarantee that a certain type of technology gets built, whereas we didn't have that kind of thing before. Who is the power purchase agreement between? Who are the parties to that? Yeah, so, and that's a little bit varied, but in general, a power purchase agreement could be between a utility or a city or a big company um, and a uh, renewable energy project directly. So someone who actually owns a solar farm or owns a wind farm or any of these other, these other types of things. So consumers, ordinary people, really don't have an ability to affect power purchase agreement except through policy and advocacy. Right. So you can advocate for your utility to include more of this energy, of, of renewable energy, and that uh, through a power purchase agreement is likely how they would do that. Interesting stuff. I appreciate it. So let's talk really briefly about industry. And of course, the global energy sector is what's considered to be the hardest to decarbonize or get away from fossil fuel. So why is this and what policies can be used to bring about some type of any type of coordinated global action? Jeff? Again, I'll start off with a few words here. Um, Industry is hard to decarbonize because there are so many different uh, sources of heat that are needed in industrial applications, producing cement, steel, petrochemicals. And in other sectors of the economy, you can electrify them now uh, largely, and that will decarbonize them. Vehicles, you can replace uh, vehicles with electric vehicles. And your home heating, you can replace your natural gas boiler with a heat pump. But in industry where they have so many diverse kinds of heating needs, it's very hard to electrify all of it. So there's going to be a a large amount that we'll need to find some other solutions to. And one of the ways I think to um, address that going forward is to have some kind of a global agreement on trade of commodities. And, you know, the industrial sector is largely responsible for producing commodities that have very thin um, margins of profit. So every time that they, they have an extra expense associated with decarbonizing, then their products become less competitive in the global market. So you have to level the playing field and get all producers to um, agree to decarbonize at the same level. And that way, one manufacturer won't be disadvantaged compared to others. Seems like it's going to have to be some pretty stiff incentives for that to happen. And we just have a couple more minutes before we have to go. Now, last week, we learned that there was a report that came out this month that actually showed that there were more deaths from fossil fuel emissions than was previously thought. So, Josh, how can decision makers incorporate findings like those into policy and investment decisions for their cities and for their people? And has there been any notable reaction to this report? Yeah, no, that's a that's a great question. And um, you know, one of the things that like that 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 I do and um, that they do at uh, the National Renewable Energy Lab is they they model the energy sector going forward, and we can put things like. Human, like health costs into those models, and we can and we can you know optimize for you know economics. We can optimize for human health. We can optimize for basically anything that that we really that we really want to. And so the better data we have, and so we know that if you know if you emit 
a you know a certain amount of a pollutant in a certain neighborhood, you know, what does that do for local asthma rates, or what does that do for you know local you know sending you know mortality, morbidity, thing, thing, things like this. We we're starting to get better data on on how you know these hyper local effects um, uh, can can materialize into into health effects, and so we can we need to be able to take those and put them in our in our models so that. You know the the model can see that, and you know maybe not put something somewhere, or not build something somewhere, or retire something that's already there in order that you know you can um, you know can lead to better health incomes or be- better health outcomes for um, for for the you know folks in our society. And I want to call on Julie really briefly from the last segment. Julie, have you seen or heard of any notable reactions from that report that showed? that the deaths from fossil fuels were just a lot higher than previously had been thought. Yeah, very much so. When we shape policies, uh, they're a reflection of um, all the benefits and all the costs of taking action or not taking action. One of the challenges of the last uh, administration was a true attack on the scientific integrity of rulemaking and trying to devalue the public health benefits that come from regulations to ease the incentive to strengthen regulations. When we see research like this, it just helps um, make so clear the health cost of actions that we aren't already considering and how important it is to incorporate them. So studies like this will absolutely factor in to standards to protect public health and the environment moving forward. Indeed, thank you. And I say this to all of you all as scientists and advocates too, two things. One is the use of the term decarbonize, and I see that all the time. And it's probably not the best word when you're trying to advocate or communicate with consumers. Because in many cases, we learned this from our work here at Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio. And I think Dr. Catherine Hayhoe said, and I take it to stretch it, A lot of times people don't want to think you're talking to them. They don't want to know it because then they don't have to do something about it. So we might want to, again, consider the terms that we use. And then the other one, I just gleaned this from the conversation with you all today, and that is it seems like there needs to be some policy advocacy toward consumers because they can benefit a lot from knowing about this report. And again, that's what part of what our work is, too, bringing it to them so that they know. A lot of times they simply don't know because, again, they think or want to think it's far from them. Again, thank you all so much. You have really made us all smarter today and helped us understand the work that is ahead of us, but also the exciting possibilities and opportunities that we really have to move towards that clean energy economy. Thank you so much. We've been with our guest today, Jeff Logan from University of Colorado at Boulder, Josh Rhodes from my alma mater, University of Texas at Austin, and Julie McNamara at the Union of Concerned Scientists. Thank you all for being with us today. Thank you. And thank you, listeners, for listening in today to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio. The conversation starts here, but our goal is for it to continue in your home, in your social circles, your workplaces, at the water cooler, and in the grocery checkout line, so that we can all work together to realize that healthy living is simply not possible without a healthy planet. Our culture is a result of a trillion tiny acts taken by billions of people every day like yourself. Each of those tiny acts can seem insignificant, 
But all of them add up, one way or the other, to the change we each live through. This is your host, Bernice Butler. Thank you, and join us again next week as we move on to talk about oceans and waters for the month of March. Thank you.